everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stansberry, and on today's show, we're going to be continuing with our series on the upcoming May election by focusing on propositions C, D, and E. In case you didn't listen to our last episode, as a quick reminder, Austin is having an election on eight different ballot propositions on May 1st, with early voting starting on April 19th. If you want to learn more about Propositions A and B, go back and give a quick listen to our last episode because we cover those in detail. But today is all about Propositions C, D, and E, which means we're going to be talking a lot about police oversight and civic engagement. First up, Prop C. Here's what it'll say on your ballot. Quote, Shall the city charter be amended to allow for a director of police oversight to be appointed or removed in a manner established by city council ordinance with duties that include the responsibility to ensure transparency and accountability as it relates to policing, end quote. And so what the heck does that mean? (laughs) To explain it all for us, let's listen in on a recent interview I recorded with council member Greg Kassar. What it means is that we are continuing to work towards more independent and effective police oversight in Austin, but we have to change our charter if we want police oversight in Austin to have the opportunity to really be independent of the administration that they're supposed to hold accountable. And so over the course of the last few years, we got rid of the old Office of Police Monitor, which was an earlier version of police oversight that had fewer powers And because of a lot of activism and and a real push by the community here, we created the new Office of Police Oversight. And it is independent of the police department in some ways, but it isn't independent of the full city administration. That is the police chief and the Office of Police Oversight all report to the same central city management structure. And in other cities, in other communities, that Office of Police Oversight is actually fully independent. They might be independently appointed by the city council, kind of like our city auditor is, or in cities like New Orleans, they actually report not just to council members, but to a community board of civilians. Mm. But none of those sorts of more independent structures are allowed right now by the city charter because the city charter bundles police oversight in with the city administration. And so that sometimes works okay, but also it means that, you know, the the office that's tasked with really holding the administration accountable could be hired and fired by that same administration. And so this creates the opportunity for it to be made more independent. Gotcha. Okay. So the main difference here is it doesn't necessarily, if voters approve this, it won't necessarily um, change that system. Like you mentioned right away where it would be, maybe that person might be reporting to city council or to some kind of citizen board but it allows council, I guess, and the community to decide to make that decision at some point, right? Like to, to change up the structure. Right now, we can't really have the conversation Got it. on a more independent OPO because it's not allowed by the charter. So what's the point of that conversation? So we brought forward to the voters an opportunity to say, if you make this change, it really elevates the OPO into the charter, makes it very clear that we're gonna have police oversight that is supposed to do that important work. And it says the community and the council can create a more independent structure if we pass this proposition. If we don't pass this proposition, then the way that it currently is is the only way that it can be. 
Got it. And so the way this got on the ballot is because um, came from your office, right? You you proposed it. There there are a few different ways that things can get on the ballot. And this way, one is a lot of things that are on the ballot this election cycle are from um, signature collection. Uh, but this one was brought forward by your office, right? That's right. We can only bring charter changes basically every two years. And so when community members got a lot of signatures for a lot of the propositions, that triggered a May election. And if we didn't put something like Proposition C on the ballot this May, then we'd have to wait probably another two years before we could consider more independent police oversight. So once all of these other propositions were going on the ballot, my office said, let's make sure that police oversight is a part of the conversation. Let's get this on the ballot now so voters can decide. And if it passes, then we'd bring the community together to say, so do we want a civilian board to uh, report to and sort of decide the fate of Office of Police Oversight? Do we want it to be more like a, our city auditor, which is council members? Do we want to mix? And we can finally have that conversation if voters pass this. But if my office hadn't and council members hadn't supported putting it on the ballot in May, then we probably would have had to wait another two years. Right. And so, you, you know, you've talked about some of the benefits of it, but um, for you, you know, why was this something important to, to put on the ballot this time? Obviously, this fits in pretty well, I think, with the larger conversation our city is having around reimagining public safety and police accountability. Yeah, in Austin, we pride ourselves and brand ourselves as this progressive city in Texas. But then when we look really independently and take a hard look at what's really happening in our community, there's a lot of things we should be doing differently, especially as it relates to economic inequality and racial injustice with policing really being at the center of a lot of that. If we take a really independent hard look, we can see some things that need to change. And that's part of what Prop C is about. If we make our police oversight really independent, where it pulls no punches and there is no consequence towards of them just feeling like they can tell the truth any day of the week, then I think we can learn a lot more about our city and that's the only way we make things better. Right. And so for folks who aren't familiar with the Office of Police Oversight, can you just give a quick overview of kind of what their roles and responsibilities are right now? The Office of Police Oversight essentially double checks the work of the police department when they're investigating cases. They also are a place for people to submit anonymous complaints in case something goes wrong uh, with policing. And so, for example, during the protests last year, that sprung up around the movement for Black Lives and the killing of George Floyd or Mike Ramos locally, there were a lot of protesters that were totally needlessly injured uh, and hurt by police in, the, in those protests. And so many of them were able to submit anonymous complaints to the Office of Police Oversight uh, for the, those things to then get uh, investigated and for the Office of Police Oversight to track how well those investigations go. And if the police chief makes a decision about uh, whether or not an officer committed misconduct or not, the Office of Police Oversight can independently say the ch police chief did this investigation right or the police chief did this investigation wrong. Of course, the challenge is that all of those folks work for the same city administration. And so the Office of Police Oversight might sometimes feel structurally like they only have so much uh, political capital, like they can only weigh in every once in a while uh, because they're all sort of part of the same family. Compare that to something like our city auditor that lives outside of the city administration where it's their job to hold the city accountable. It's their job to not pull punches. And so that's part of the shift that we're, we're considering is making that office more independent. Right now, 
they do hard work. They, they evaluate policing policy. They've recommended to us stronger body cam uh, uh, rules. They've recommended stricter use of force requirements. So they still are a really effective and important office, but we're trying to find a way to continue to make them more effective, more independent, and make them feel like um, they can say exactly what they think without feeling like they are ruffling feathers within their own organization. Mm-hmm. And just for a little background or context, like you mentioned, before we had the Office of Police Oversight, we had the police monitor, um, kind of an earlier iteration of that. And I believe that went away when we redid the police contract negotiation a few years ago. Um, and so this office has more powers than that one, right? It seems like we're we're continuously continuously iterating on this process of trying to figure out, okay, how can we build a, a stronger and stronger police accountability structure in our city? That's right. A big part of the history of the city is community members coming together to push for stronger police oversight, while oftentimes, unfortunately, the police association bargains and pushes as hard as they can to reduce the scope of that police oversight. And so we saw that essentially the deal that was struck um, in the early 2000s was that we'd have this Office of Police Monitor that would have some roles, but also couldn't independently start, kick off an investigation, couldn't go and audit uh, old footage, couldn't receive anonymous complaints. And so we came together and pushed really hard during the police contract negotiations to give all those powers to the Office of Police Oversight, who can now receive anonymous complaints, who can now kick off an investigation, can do things they couldn't do before. Uh, And now this proposition, Prop C, is to continue that process of strengthening police oversight. So that's Proposition C. Now we're going to shift gears slightly and talk about Propositions D and E. Propositions D and E are both on the ballot this election because of a signature collection drive led by a group known as Austinites for Progressive Reform. They're also responsible for putting propositions F, G, and H on the ballot, but we'll get to those props in the next episode. So who is Austinites for Progressive Reform? Um, The group is chaired by Andrew Allison, who's an entrepreneur and founder of Main Street Hub, which is a local marketing company that was actually recently acquired by GoDaddy. And in 2018, Andrew created Be a Corporate Citizen, which is a coalition of companies and nonprofits committed to providing their employees paid time off to vote in the midterm elections. And before all that, he worked in the democracy program at the Brennan Center for Justice and on the speechwriting team for John Kerry's 2004 presidential campaign. And some other founding members of Austinites for Progressive Reform include Jim Wick, who was a field organizer for Obama's campaign in 2008 and also worked in Mayor Adler's office. Uh, Laura Hernandez-Holmes, who worked as the Texas finance director for Beto O'Rourke's presidential campaign, and Eugene Sepulveda, who serves as chair of Jolt Texas's Leadership Council. Um, For the past year, they've been working on a full slate of initiatives, which you'll get to vote on as propositions D through H, um, that they say will help strengthen our local democratic system. In an open letter on their website, they wrote that back in 1965, quote, President Johnson declared access to the ballot as our country's most fundamental right, and he described the history of this country as the history of the expansion of the right to all of our people. Today, we are called to expand that right again. It's our turn to move this city, this state, and our country closer to our ideals, end quote. Austinites for Progressive Reform also includes a leadership committee of 90 Austinites who support their propositions. Um, Earlier this month, I sat down with two of those committee members to talk about Propositions D and E. 
in a minute, I'll, les- I'll let you listen in on that interview with uh, Nathan Ryan and Liz Kofel. Nate is CEO of Blue Sky Partners and co-founder of a local civics group called Good Politics. And Liz is a local civics organizer and co-founder of Good Politics as well. But before we listen to that interview, I just want to read for you the ballot language for propositions D and E. Okay, here's D. Quote, Shall the city charter be amended to transition the election for mayor from gubernatorial gubernatorial election years to presidential election years, providing that the mayor elected in 2022 will serve a two-year term and then mayoral elections will occur on the same date as presidential elections starting in 2024. End quote. And here's the ballot language for Proposition E. Quote, Shall the city charter be amended to provide for the use of ranked choice voting in city elections if such voting is permitted by state law? End quote. Okay, let's listen to that interview with Nate and Liz. Okay, I'm here with Nate and Liz, and we're going to be talking uh, more about the election. And in particular today, we're going to focus on propositions D and E. Um, it's always hard to <laughs> keep them all straight, but uh, so let's start with Prop D. And this is about uh, changing the date of our city's mayoral elections. Um Nate, can you can you kick us off here? Like, what is this proposition about? What's it asking us? Sure, absolutely. Um, I worked the polls last year, and it was such a weird year to be doing that. Liz, I know you did that as well. Um, but one thing that was really clear was I had also worked the polls earlier in the year, right? I worked in July, and then I worked in November. November was just infinitely uh, higher in terms of turnout. Um, and it turns out that turnout is just inherently higher when there's a presidential uh, race happening. So uh, over the last 15 years, the turnout in presidential races uh, has been 20 percentage points higher than the turnout in the midterms. In Austin, that means more than 100,000 additional voters participate in presidential years. And not only is it a more, not only is it a larger electorate, it's also more diverse in terms of income, age, and race. Uh, And so Prop D, Uh, seeks to move the mayoral election, which currently happens in the midterm years, uh, to the presidential year, where we have higher turnout. And the argument for that, the thought process behind that is, if you have higher turnout, more voters means a more representative uh, choice. Uh, More people have had the opportunity to uh, have a say in who is leading our city uh, in the mayor's seat. Right. I guess the idea here is, You know, the presidential election obviously gets a ton of media attention. Um, People are showing up um, in much bigger numbers. And, you know, sometimes for mayoral elections, which are held during midterms, I think it's also when we elect our governor, Mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't get as much media attention. And I think sometimes people don't aren't even really aware there's an election going on or don't perhaps feel that this social pressure as much to be like, well, you know what, I got to make time to go to the polls. But perhaps if right. they go during the presidential year, they'll keep scrolling down their ballot and say, oh, there's more stuff or they'll do more research in advance and realize, oh, I'm also going to get to elect my mayor during this mm-hmm. period of time. Yeah. I mean, voters don't uh, don't always have an opinion on every um, ballot measure or uh, candidate that's up, um, but they almost always have an opinion on the, the president. So you know, I think selecting key roles like our mayor on presidential years just makes sense um, because it's more likely to include the voices of more Austinites. 
Right. And so if this gets passed, basically, I think it'll make a small change so that our next uh, scheduled mayoral election, I believe, is in 2022. So I believe that if this is passed, they'll just make it so whoever is picked in that election will just serve for two years and then be up for election or re-election again in 2024 so we can get on that uh, presidential cycle because we elect our mayor every four years just like the president is as well. Correct. Yep, exactly. Gotcha. Um, Okay, and Liz, anything to chime in there? I guess, you know, as someone who is a civic enthusiast as well, um, what are your thoughts on Prop D? I think Nathan covered it. <laughs> the only other thing that I would add, and and I'll I'll share more on this point as well as we get into Prop E, is that voting for many people is a strain, right? Like it takes a lot of time to get off work, to get childcare, to you know use public transit to find your polling place, and not everybody even has internet to look up where those civic resources are. So the more that we can combine and make an efficient democracy for everybody, the more inclusive it'll be. Got it. Um, Okay, so that's Prop D, fairly straightforward, simpler to understand and explain. Um, Prop B is a little bit more involved. Um, So let's talk about that. Maybe, Liz, can you give us the initial explanation? Um, Prop E is all about ranked choice voting. Um, What is that? Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited, Amy, to talk about this. Thank you for having us on. Um, <clears throat> Prop E, you know, as you stated, ranked choice voting is a really interesting and wonderful, in my opinion, system of voting. So when, you know, it's my time to vote for my city council member, I'll go to the polls, I'm in district three, and I choose one out of, let's say, five people running. Under ranked choice voting, I would instead rank all five people running. I would say, this is my first choice, my second choice, my third, fourth, fifth, and so on. And that allows my vote to go further. So that's, that is the very basic explanation of what ranked choice voting is. It's actually really, really simple. You just rank, you know, most favorite to least favorite. Right. right? <laughs> Leaving out people that you don't wanna include at all, which voters can also do. Um, the reason, why this is so, so important and can be really, really um, impactful to our local democracy in a really positive way is it would eliminate the need for any runoff election in the future. Runoff elections, as you know, they're a strain, not only on city resources, right? It takes a lot of time and a lot of city money to set up runoff elections for, you know, sometimes things that are really like smaller offices, right? Like, you know, a you know, school board position or, um, you know, or a, a judge, for example, things that that don't garner a whole lot of attention. The city is spending a ton of money and resources to get these different polling places set up, to get the Travis County clerk set up to, you know, message where everything is and to get um, people working the polls. You know, a, a common misconception is people think they volunteer to work the polls. You don't volunteer for the city, you're still paid. So, that's again surface level of the awesomeness of eliminating runoff elections but more importantly is runoff elections again exclude many people from voting because a lot of our neighbors in austin you know they work you know we all work um jobs where you can't always just take off and go to the polls for a random runoff election 
right? Like most people don't have flexible working hours. Not everybody has access to transportation. A lot of people have disabilities and voting is a strain on that, right? You know, I have a ton of friends who are parents of young children. They can't just drop everything and go vote. Um, so eliminating runoff elections because of this ranked choice voting system would create a much, much more inclusive democracy. Right. And so just to explain for folks a little bit of what you touched on here in Austin. So for our city council races, for example, um, when you go to vote on those in November, you know, we don't have a primary process um, and our candidates right. run don't run as Republicans or Democrats even officially. Um, and so you can have six, seven. I've seen city council races with like 10 people in them. Um, and under Austin's law, you have to get more than 50% of the vote to actually win, which is really hard when you have that many candidates running in a race. And so these runoff elections are pretty common. And, and like you mentioned, I think they tend to be, you know, for our November city council elections, the runoffs are like in mid-December, it's near the holidays. Sometimes they are after like this last, we just had a runoff election in December. And it was after an exhausting presidential election that I think made everyone be like, okay, I'm done. Like I'm not going back to the polls for a little while. And you definitely saw lower voter turnout. So the idea here is you're preventing the need for that runoff. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And so more innovative, right. More efficient. Okay. So, um, I want to talk a little bit about, so that's the basic idea of it. My understanding though, is right now it's not legal to have ranked choice voting in Texas. Is that true? Yeah, it's a great question. <laughs> this is honestly, this is something that I've had to research myself because I was in the gray. I didn't know. I've also heard that it's illegal. And then I've heard that it's, that it is kind of legal. And here's what I found in 2001, there was um, the Secretary of State of Texas essentially wrote um, a memo stating that it's illegal, but this is not law codified. It was just an opinion. So we can't hold it to anything more than it is. The Secretary of State of Texas doesn't write laws. Um, so with that being said, it's not legal, it's not illegal. So it's not illegal, but it's not codified. And someday it will be. And so we need to change our city charter um, now. We need to amend it now so that when, you know, our state does decide to make it legal, it's on the books. And so what would happen, you know, if Prop E passes, which I hope that it will, then the city can decide. They can either go ahead and enact it for this next upcoming 2022 election. If they decide it's legal, they may wait to see um, if any law passes, most likely this, sec this session. I know um, State Senator Sarah Eckhart, she has a, a Senate bill right now that would codify ranked choice voting to make it legal. But even if that doesn't pass, there's still you know, potential that the city would decide to, to use ranked choice voting. Got it. Okay. So it is a little bit of this gray area where depends how I guess, aggressive with it, the city wants to be us as citizens. If we passed this, it gives, I, I assume it's city council, the option yeah. to say, we're going to change our elections to rank choice voting, um, and then see what happens. I, I wouldn't be surprised if a lawsuit occurred out of that, but perhaps that would force right. an issue in the courts and we'd get an answer. Yes. Um, okay. Yes. 
<laughs> Got it. And then the other avenue is it's it seems like something that's being discussed in the legislature. I know that there are some um, groups out there that are working on this at a statewide advocacy level of trying to bring this to um, more places throughout Texas or, or increased yeah. general acceptance of this in Texas. Right. Yeah. And something that's exactly it. Amy, and something really important is that this is not a partisan issue. There are many states and communities that are, you know, way, way more right-leaning and, you know, typically vote GOP and some that are more left-leaning. And this is a really awesome framework of democracy that both sides have adopted and it works well because it centers the voter. You know, that's something that Nate and I talk a lot about. It's like, who does this policy center? Who does this benefit? you know, and it centers the voter because voters are busy. And I think sometimes in politics, people forget that, oh my gosh, this isn't our jobs, right? Like we have jobs, families, lives, responsibilities, like, you know, kids to take care of. And in all of that, we have an election because we, you know, we're going to vote. We care about our community. We're going to get involved to the best of our ability. But, you know, systems like this that seem new and different and kind of scary, right? Like ranked choice voting isn't something people talk about a lot. It's still not widely known about, um, but it, it has the potential to, to make voting simpler, you know, Mm -hmm. and to make it more accessible to everyone. And to me, that's what democracy is about. Right. And so you talk about making things simpler as being one benefit. What are some other benefits you see out of ranked choice voting? Some other things that I've heard, um, as potential benefits are, um, this idea of it making it easier for people to vote for, again, it's it's a little vague for city council, but like a third party candidate. You know, yeah. I know a lot of people who are, you know, maybe Green Party folks or independent Absolutely. folks and usually don't sometimes are like, oh, can I can I cast that vote for that person that I really like? Because then am I taking away a vote from the person I kind of like <laughs> and to yeah. make sure the person I hate doesn't get elected? You know, there's a lot of that sure. at play um, that it helps with that. Right. That's it. You're absolutely right. Um, Ranked choice voting gives space for for a third party, for a fourth party, right? Green party, libertarian, you know, somebody who runs as an independent. Um, And that's important. It's important that voters have choice, right? Um, Because there are a lot of libertarians out there and they're not often represented. And even, you know, let's say you identify as one party, but you you know, like this other candidate from a different party that's running, like that's your choice as a voter to, you know, to select that person as your second choice, maybe. And that's, that's the beauty of, of the system. Yeah. And, and, you know, I wonder kind of tied to that, um, Nate or Liz, I don't know, chime in on this. Like, I know you both are, are engaged in civic engagement work and, um, seem to be always trying to figure out a way how to make these things, politics more approachable and, and less, um, you know, combative. And, and it seems like potentially an upside of ranked choice voting could be you're facilitating that a little bit, right? You're not asking people to choose one or the other. You're asking them to rank them on a spectrum. Do you see that as opening a window there to like help us be like even an inch more civil than we are now or <laughs> something progress in that direction? I don't know, Nate, do you want to chime in on that? Yeah, I mean, I think the truth is much like life, uh, you know, 
choices in politics are not binary and we are often forced into a position where we have to feel binary. Uh, we, we feel like we have to make a binary choice. Um, and I think one thing that's great about ranked choice voting is that uh, it, it allows you to see some nuance in things and weight things you know, in order of your personal preferences. And maybe that's different this time than it was last time, but maybe you're, you know, at that point you're able to individualize the candidate um, in this case uh, and really think about how you connect with them or if you don't, you know, and you don't have to think about it through the lens of simply a party structure. Um, you can think about it through the lens of how you relate to that candidate and their platform um, and how those candidates and their platform relate to other candidates and their platforms. Um, and so I think that's really important. Um, I mean, the more we can, uh, uh, the more we can make our politics less binary, the better our politics will be, I think. Yeah. And, you know, I wonder also maybe Liz, you can explain for us a bit. So people are able to rank things and then what happens on the back end of that, right? How do we get a winner off of that ranking? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really, really great, great question. And, you know, I'm not on the back end of that, so I'll do the best I can. But essentially, rather than going to a runoff when you have a binary choice, um, votes are weighted based on first, second, third, fourth, fifth. It's that weighting that'll determine um, how someone is is chosen, like who, who did the people decide on, right? And... And I think a really interesting, you know, looking back at even the 2016 election, right? Like, you know, the person that we elected, like, because there is no ranked choice voting for primary elections, and oh my gosh, that'll be my next cause, because that would be amazing to have ranked choice voting for party primaries. You know, you had people that are very, very fringe on one side going for him, and then all the moderates had their vote split up between everyone else. So they were outweighted, right? And you see this on in both parties, right? Like somebody who's more extreme on one end will get the entire, you know, extreme conglomerate. And then people that are often more moderate, that vote is split between five of them or six of them. And so they're less popular, even though there's more people who side with those policies. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, I think the primary point um, is a great one, you know, in the in the reading and the research I've done on ranked choice voting, um, that does seem like the most obvious place where a lot of change could actually happen from this, because you are really presented with that situation more where ranking might be valuable to you. You know, you do identify with that party already. So you probably do find most of the candidates on there acceptable. Right. And so you are kind of more in a position where you're like, okay, I'm a Democrat and I've got, you know, like in this past primary for the Democrats, there's a ton of candidates on the ballot and ranking does feel like a little bit more of an appropriate way to do it than just picking one. Um, because you probably like quite a few, right? They're part of your party. And then maybe there's one or two that you hate, but otherwise you probably do have your own internal ranking in your brain. Yeah. And, and Amy, something really interesting about that we haven't yet touched on is then the onus that's placed on the voter to do their research, 
right? Because often when we go into election, it's like, this is my guy, this is who I'm voting for. I walk in for him and then I'm out, right? But when your vote can be extended, let's say like in city council or for the Austin mayoral race, you know, across seven different people, um, you're gonna research them, right? Because, you know, like you'll be able to rank them like second, third, fourth, fifth place. And an informed, a more informed electorate is always a good thing. So that's another benefit I'm really excited about. Mm -hmm. And just to clarify for folks, if this were to pass, what we're talking about is implementing or potentially one day implementing ranked choice voting for our city council and mayoral elections exclusively, right? That's all that we as Austin voters have the power to impact. Is that right? That is correct. Um, That's also key for folks to know. Um, Okay, so before we wrap up, um, I'm wondering if maybe each of you can kind of give us some summary or closing thoughts on, especially coming at it from this perspective of improving our democracy, which which feels like such an important issue right now and something that so many Americans and Austinites are, are passionate about. Why are you two personally engaged in this and feel like um, these are initiatives, you know, D&E that could improve our democratic system here in Austin? Maybe Liz, we'll start with you. Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, thank you for your time and thank you for your listeners' time. It's been super fun and and an honor to be on such a great show. Um, I'm going to say what I've been saying the whole time is, you know, that ranked choice voting creates a more inclusive democracy. And the city of Austin is really diverse and it's growing. Um, It is very economically diverse, right? Like not we, not everybody, you know, is a wealthy white tech entrepreneur. Those people are great, but there are so many other community members that are left out of our democratic process and that's unacceptable. Um, You know, eliminating runoff elections would be a huge burden lift for our community and ranked choice voting allows us to do so while also allowing the voter to have their say extend across a multiplicity of different candidates. All right. And how about you, Nate? I mean, I think for me at the end of the day, um, we always want more voters, not less, right? At the end of the day, we want voters to uh, have time and confidence when they step into the voting booth and we want them we want them to step into the voting booth, you know? And so I think all of these reforms, uh, especially the ones that we've talked about today, um, I think are really focused on that simply. Like when you boil it down, you know, how do you make Austin's, um, how do you make Austin elections more convenient, more inclusive, so we have more voters? Um, and I think it's really as simple as that. And these, these two reforms are proven Uh, to achieve that goal. Okay, so that was Nate and Liz. Now, before we move on to our next guest, I wanted to take a moment to explain exactly how ranked choice voting works. As you heard Liz mention, for the voter, it's fairly straightforward. Just rank the candidates from your most to least favorite. But then, how is a winner actually chosen? Here's an example for you. Let's pretend you and your friends are trying to pick a place to eat, and you've narrowed it down to four options. Torchy's Tacos, Thundercloud Subs, Terry Black's Barbecue, and Home Slice Pizza. 
Under a ranked choice voting system, you and all your friends would fill out ballots, ranking your restaurant options from one to four. After that, all the first choice votes would be added up. Let's say Home Slice gets more than 50% of the votes, then the election is over and Home Slice wins. It's just like a regular election at that point. But if none of the restaurants receive more than 50% of those first place votes, then you look at the restaurant that received the least number of first place votes. Let's say that's Thundercloud. You then look at the ballots of everyone who picked Thundercloud as their first choice and see what they picked as their second choice. Thundercloud is then eliminated from the running and those second choice votes are redistributed to the other restaurants. And then this process continues over and over again until one restaurant has more than 50% of the votes. So hopefully that clears things up a bit. We did an Instagram post about this as well um, that visualizes it a bit, so you can always check that out. And just for a bit of context, although ranked choice voting is fairly new in the U.S., it's starting to become more widely adopted. Um, it's already used in Australia, Ireland, New Zealand, and Scotland. And as of April 2021, over 9.2 million voting age citizens in the U.S. live in jurisdictions that have adopted ranked choice voting for various election types. And these include places like Maine, Alaska, San Francisco, Minneapolis, Oakland, and Santa Fe. So how is ranked choice voting going in those places in the U.S. that have adopted it? To answer that question, we're going to listen in on an interview I recorded with Dr. Amanda Lopez Haskin, who is the county clerk in Doña Ana County in New Mexico. Doña Ana County is home to the city of Las Cruces, where their city council actually voted to adopt ranked choice voting in 2018. As county clerk, Amanda was responsible for overseeing the area's first ever ranked choice voting election, which took place in 2019, when 10 candidates were running for the mayoral seat. Okay, let's listen to that interview with Amanda. And so, um, can you can you maybe explain for folks to start, because this is a, a difficult part, and um, I know you have some experience here. How did you, how do you explain for people here in Austin, we're thinking about adopting ranked choice voting, also called an instant runoff. How do you explain this to the average layperson who doesn't really think about voting that much, except, you know, maybe when they go to the ballot box every few years to vote like a presidential election. Or right. Something. They're not obsessed with the everything. Um, exactly. Like me or maybe you. And yeah. so it's on kind of constantly parallel to our lives. No. So what I would say is, first of all, for those that are very nervous and for those that are thinking of not participating because it's confusing, what I say is vote classic vote for the one candidate that you want to win and move on. If you're not going to vote, please just vote like you always would and pick your candidate of choice, circle the box, and then move on to- You're still able to do that. You can just Absolutely. vote for one. Absolutely. That was my biggest, uh, one of the things I wanted to, especially older people, um, we tend to have our senior citizens that were just adamant that they, they did not like this. And I gave them permission not to like it. And I said, absolutely. And I, I mean, I'm being facetious, but I said, you're absolutely, I'm not going to convince you. Uh, and that's fine, but I want you to participate. It is so important that you participate. This is something you've always done. And the idea that you would not participate because you're confused is deeply distressing to me. So what I'm going to tell you is 
vote for the person you want to win, the number one, and move on. So let me dispel that first. It should not prevent anybody from voting. I call it voting quote unquote classic. You know, you can kind of call it what you want. And media campaigns by the municipalities or um, arenas that are having these campaigns are often very helpful. And that's one of the things that I found was the most helpful. The second thing that I found is if we talk about ranked choice voting in terms of an instant runoff, it is something that people get. Um, so it's just instant, right? So if you have three, if you have four candidates and nobody reaches that 50%, uh, you know, then it goes to a runoff. So that means the one with the lowest amount of votes is gone. But hey, if, if voters ranked the other ones in terms of, then those votes would be then transferred to the three. Then we see, does anybody else have 50% more, 50% plus one? Nope. Then it may go to the last two. And the, the voters who choose who chose to rank their vote up, up to th three or four, right, really four, then those would go to the last remaining. And then there has to be, obviously, a 50% plus one at that point. And I think there's like some obscure discussions about what if it's an absolute tie? You know, mm -hmm. there should be rules for that in terms of like it could be potentially like a coin, uh, coin toss, literally. But uh, that's probably I don't know if that's ever happened. Um, so if you think about it being an instant runoff, then I think it's it's something that people can wrap their mind around. There's great videos um, that Fair Vote has put out. There's great videos um, across the YouTube spectrum connected to why people are for it, why people are for against it. But my the most important thing for me is how does it work? Right. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and, and, and I think that's kind of where it is. So and I always say like the things that make it good or is it, it the things that may get you on board is that I think the city of Las Cruces saved one hundred thousand uh, dollars by choosing ranked choice voting. Inevitably, obviously, with nine candidates, there would have been a runoff. And so at that point, uh, that was a huge, you know, plus for some people. Because it because it costs money for people to understand. It costs money for a city or a county to run Elections an election. So we have to we have to pay our poll officials. We have to pay our employees. We have to pay our vendors that provide equipment and et cetera. I mean, it is a huge undertaking, $100,000, maybe even underselling it for large municipalities. I think I've heard in excess of 1.5 million for um, you know, large cities. So when you think about that in itself, when you can take care of that at the front end by people ranking who they want. Um, and you know, kind of, I would be very casual when I talk about it. My background's in education, I love to teach. And so what I would say, if, hey, if your cousin is running and you may not like love your cousin but you but you want to vote for them but you know you know this other person would be a great you can vote for both of them right so you can you can give your first vote to one but you can actually give your second to your cousin who you want to vote for you think it's real unlikely they're going to win but you're not necessarily splitting that vote where you have to make a decision it also encourages more you know better campaigning more about issues and less about really personal attacks because if you and I are in a ballot and I'm bad mouthing you left and right people are going to get turned off by me and they're probably going to they're probably going to rank you and maybe somebody else so I've literally seen campaign signs for the same role at the same house in the front yard because they I could tell they were going to they were going to rank at least those two people um, connected to the to the campaign yeah and there's a potential there too I guess for to you know I think sometimes especially like you mentioned in these municipal elections where um, you could have a lot of candidates. You're bound to have a few who are maybe more similar to each other. Right, right. And, and sometimes the drive then 
is for those very similar candidates to be the most aggressive to each other because they know that Burn the same right. voter, right, is going to pick one between one of them. But you're kind of saying in this ranked choice system, it facilitates maybe um, an option where it will pick one. Of, you're probably going to pick all of us. You're just going to rank us in some order. And so the candidates might be a little less mean to each other because they know right. they it's mean- kind of like they are more motivated to appear and be um, congenial and cooperative and to talk about issues um, and where they differ from the uh, opposition, however closely they are aligned or not. And, and you know, I, th- I testified semi-recently at the Maryland legislature and, um, you know, it was interesting because there, this is going to, you know, every, every state is different, but it, this is actually going on a statewide level in terms of even giving people an option. So it's not even really moved forward a lot, but one of the, and it was a majority democratic um, group that I was speaking with. And a one woman um, spoke, a delegate, they call them delegates, I believe there. She said, and she was a Republican and she said, you know, this is totally geared towards Democrat, something along those lines. She was really like, this is not how, I said, actually, that's not true. It gives people, um, it kind of evens the, the playing field, so to speak. You know, in our particular race, we had everything from a 19 year old Latino a male to, you know, the status quo mayor who's been here for three or four terms um, and he ended up winning, but in nine rounds, that means it went into every, it went into eight runoffs. Wow. Yes. Yeah. So it was kind of an extraordinary um, thing. Of course, it would happen in our county because we always get the high profile fun stuff. But um, he did. It is after is funny afterwards. He wasn't necessarily on board with ranked choice voting, but somebody asked him, well, how do you feel about ranked choice voting now? And he said, I feel great because I won. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, makes sense. So, um, yeah. Keep going. You were talking about, I guess, yeah, some of the benefits, potential benefits. Yeah. And so I think this idea that um, we, we can have this discourse that is civil, that's, bo- that's focused on issues and really pins down candidates, especially if they're similar, uh, you know, um, political views there. And, you know, generally it's nonpartisan, right? These races are nonpartisan. Our, our, our municipality that we were, where we ran a ranked choice voting, it was not, it was considered nonpartisan, but there are leanings of course, for every candidate. Uh, but the, also the idea that it's going to save money. Also the idea that you get you, the turnout is better because people are already there for an election is something that's really important. Um, and also we want to be in communities and this is really important where the majority of the citizens have put some level of support behind a candidate. I may feel lukewarm about a candidate. I may be like, eh, he's all right. I could, you know, I think he's a good person and I just don't think he's that smart. I mean, people say these things all the time, right? But I think you're a good person and they're gonna make decent decisions. I may rank them, I may rank them. And so at the end of the day, you know that 50 plus 1% of your community put some level of support behind a leader versus 30, 31. I mean, that's not necessarily uh, the democracy that we think about as being representative of what the majority wants. Right. It could also, it seems like, help prevent, you know, the most extreme candidates from rising to the top. It seems like that's a problem I hear or a concern I hear from many you know, average Americans who just, like you said, when they're supposed to, but are, you know, and they sometimes feel disconnected from like the two extreme 
emotions put before them, right? Right. And at I times, think, right. And I think like, I, I know this is like a funny analogy. There's very few people that are super beautiful and there's very few people that are <laughs> super ugly, right? We're all kind of in here. And that's the reality, I think, of our political spectrum as well. And so when you have the extremes, frankly, they usually are, they're knocked off um, initially they're, because the fewer people connect with them and their perspective. And so they're not going to get ranked um, very highly. And they likely will, uh, you know, they likely will be excluded from the rounds as they go on. If you think of them as rounds, I think that's helpful because you think, okay, this first round, so-and-so had the least amount of votes. And so they're gone. But those who ranked the ballot, when I say ranked the ballot, it means they went down through it. Those votes are now going to be um, given to the ones that they ranked, if they ranked them, you know, X, you know, whatever ranking they had, it could be one through eight or whatever it is at that point. I'm using nine because of course that's what we went through. And then you go through the next round. This is all done through an algorithm that is way beyond my um, knowledge of math and statistics, et cetera. But, you know, they, it's something that has been well, well, well done um, by the vendors that do ranked choice voting and have done them across the country. When you think that ranked choice voting is used in Australia, pretty, pretty widely um, in other parts of our state, pretty widely and people are very happy with it. But the fear comes in and I think that's the big thing we have to dispel. So that is why I particularly talk about voting classic because the fear is what can keep people from wanting to understand it. Um, I have been in, this is considered a progressive or a democratic uh, way to vote, right? It's very much like, oh, the progressives want it. They want to change everything crazy. Da, da, da. And, and, and so um, I've had, I've, but I've been in those group where even the most progressive person has said, I, I, it's change. I don't want it. I don't. And so I think we first have to say, I get it. I get it, but let's talk about you know, if it's going to happen. I want you to have faith in our process and our system. And these are the ways in which you can feel confident about the way that you're voting and the results being accurate and true and et cetera. So, you know, you have to have all those simultaneous conversations. I've been in very difficult groups that, um, you know, were, were not happy with me. And mm -hmm. I acknowledged it because we have to like, hey, I hear that you're angry. I hear what you're saying. Um, I understand that you think this should go to the voters, but this is where we are today. And if this moves forward, I want you to vote. So let's figure out how you can feel comfortable with that. Let's talk about the process. And even if I have to show 10 YouTube videos and we have to, you know, for example, we changed the logo in my office uh, about a year and a half ago. And I did it through ranked choice voting. I had four logos and I had mm. my staff go, you know, um, people have done it through ice cream, funny rankings and, you know, kind of done things like that. If you start kind of small and, you know, it, it, it's, um, it's a, it's a heavy lift, but it's doable. Right. And so, you know, it makes me think, I, I want to talk a little bit about the logistics of it, because I think you're right. There is, we're in this heightened time of fear around our election integrity. And I think any change is just like people are more suspicious maybe than they've been in the past. Right. So logistically on the back end, you know, you're the county clerk, this is your domain, like how, you know, you don't need to tell me the, you know, like you mentioned the, how the computer works, but how, how does it work? How do you start this? And then like, what is the undertaking for a county? You know, did it cost initial money for you all to make this change? You have to buy you know, special you're machines. Gonna be yeah, you're going to be shocked at when I say how simple it was. Um, our vendor, 
who we've contracted with, who is a certified vendor with our state, which is something that's required by law in our state, is you must be a vendor through the state and approved by the state and have passed through rigorous um, and extreme, basically, uh, levels of service and accountability, et cetera, to be a vendor. So our vet vendor presses a button. Okay. And so they have the it, program, probably the machine, you don't need a new machine. No, the same we machine have, can probably have, do it. Right. I have 35 staff. And so the idea, and we had, I think near, I want to say, um, we had a pretty good turnout with, uh, I want to say 30 or 40,000. I'm going to ballpark it you know, it's not like we're sitting in the back going, okay, no, this one ranked this. It's an algorithm. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's driven by the computer. It's not something that realistically it would take us probably weeks or months to, to actually be able to, you know, recreate that. I really love that New Mexico has handmarked paper ballots. Hmm. That is really the gold standard connected to that accountability factor and this integrity that we talk because at any given moment, I can recreate that election for you one by one if I had to. So these vendors that we you know, pay lots of money to have every motivation to do an excellent and accurate job. In New Mexico, we also have the testing of our machines, right? So we've heard a lot about machines and vendors, et cetera. We have a process in which we announce to the public, hey, we're gonna be testing every iteration of the ballot, regardless of where you live in our county. We're gonna test every machine uh, for every iteration of the ballot. It's a public process. You're invited to join us and look at the results and the tapes. Then, you know, again, per our state law, um, we are not, there is not a way to hook up our machines to the internet. Our tabulators are, have no brain in terms of like, there's no way to cook, hook them up to the internet there. Um, you know, they're called time, they're called gapped. You know, there's no, there's no way we could do that. Um, and then they're, they're, once they're tested, they're basically given a zero. There's zero votes on that machine. They're sealed, right? And then the poll officials who are community members, and they're made up of uh, all parties, right? It has to be a fair distribution of parties. Then um, they open the machines, they verify and sign it as a zero count. And then we have election officials that take that throughout the day and watch the count go up. Then in New Mexico, again, um, at the end of the night, when we're doing our totals, we basically spit out a receipt that shows, um, you know, basically are the votes. Then at that point, literally those receipts that evening are mailed to uh, their judicial court and the secretary of state's office. So, you know, that's just touching on the levels of accountability that we have, as well as all of the poll officials that are community members that have their eyes and their ears and everything they should have on our elections. So when we talk about dispelling the elections, I think it's really important to talk about these safeguards we have, these checks and balances that we have in elections, that as a new clerk, I came in and, you know, my background is in research. And when I researched how well we do elections in New Mexico, we, we have some challenges in other areas. If you look at those rankings of states, you'll definitely see that. But in New Mexico, we do elections really well. And so I was able to talk about that to voters when I was talking about ranked choice voting. So really taking it to the macro as well and not just talking about this ranked choice voting and well, what are the safeguards in general that we have and making that a discussion point as well. Yeah, and so when you, you know, it since you have a little bit of this experience implementing it, you mentioned some of it, it seems like education is the big hurdle or barrier, but what advice would you have for a community like Austin who, you know, say this passes and we do implement ranked choice voting to make that process happen smoothly for a community? Cause I'm sure it's at first can feel a little chaotic. So I think, uh, learn and sit on it for a while and then learn more and watch it again and watch it the third time 
and get into the weeds a little bit, especially if you're going to be talking about it from a place of, um, you know, authority. I know that we had a candidate training. So I can, I probably did, I don't know, 50 or 60, 70 community presentations in any kind of way. If you gave me a platform, I was willing to go and talk about it. Again, even ones that were very painful, but, but it was important to do that. Uh, but beyond that, candidates are huge, huge bearers of information. You can't, I mean, if I was a candidate and I was, well, I was a candidate, but if I was a race-based voting candidate, I wouldn't come and say, ah, they're doing it this way. And I don't know, I don't know about it, but this is the way we're going to do. So I think approaching it from a very pragmatic way that gives the facts and again, encourages people to vote regardless, vote classic, but also recognize that if the race that you're voting in goes to more than a couple of rounds, you have basically removed yourself if you've only ranked one person. You've removed yourself from the subsequent runoffs, right? So I think A, talking about a way at the very least neutrally, whether you're a candidate or whether you're a clerk, give the information, tell them how it works. Um, I obviously could not go into the weeds of the math and how the, you know, the basically the brains of it work because I just couldn't. I mean, who can really? Uh, well, there are people that can, but it's not me. And, and, and so I did talk about it from uh, my perspective as a voter, as somebody who wants participation and encouraging an open mind, but also validate people's concerns, right? When somebody, and this is my, whole perspective as a candidate, as I've been, that has faced some very angry people. If you're concerned about the electoral process and you're coming to me at a question, we're in the same place on some level because I am so invested in it that I am running for office, something I never thought I would do. I am putting myself out there uh, to you for your consumption, literally, on some days and but if you're there and you're calling me and you're angry about something but you're so concerned that you're going to show up to a forum that you're going to call me that you're going to email me we're on the same page on some level so i like to approach it where we're you're concerned okay let's talk about that tell me some of your concerns and so they say well you know there's ways you can manipulate and how do i know the votes are counted and then we talk about the certification of the machines so i think you have to anticipate the naysayers the concerns the doubt, the negativity, you have to anticipate that and come up with stock things that are helpful to voters to feel more confident. And then you have to validate their experiences and then always encourage them regardless how they vote and how many they rank that you want them to vote. Yeah. And so I know this program is still just new for Las Cruces, but do you feel like it's beginning to do what it set out to do, which is, I guess, increase voter? It seems like the biggest thing is it's increasing maybe voter turnout because you don't have that second runoff, which tends to have really low right, right. voter turnout. But also you're giving voters even more of a voice in the regular voting process. It seems like you're increasing voters' voice. Um, I also think, you know, when we talk about range choice voting, um, in terms of like how it's done in Las Cruces, they did some poll um, um, surveys after a poll, you know, after at the, some of the sites, the voting locations. And the majority of people liked it. it I mean, I based on my experiences promoting it throughout the community, I wasn't sure that was going to be the case. And I was very pleased to find out that, you know, at the very least they felt okay about it and they were happy to be able to rank what they did, most of them. Um, I think there was like, I wanna say like 65 to 70% ranked up the ballot. Right, so they did go one through nine and do their rankings. Um, I want to say about sixty or so percent were, were satisfied with the process. 
Um, and a lot of what they talk about is how it would be better is if you increased uh, voter education and the understanding. Okay, that was Amanda. And speaking of other places that have adopted ranked choice voting or considered it, Massachusetts actually just had a proposition, which it calls questions, um, to adopt ranked choice voting for all state and federal elections except for the presidential race. And that was on their ballot this past November, and it failed. Um, Some of the arguments against it were that it was too confusing and complicated. As WBUR reported in an October 2020 story, quote, But Jennifer Braceras, a political analyst and board member of the Massachusetts Fiscal Alliance, took the opposing view, saying the Commonwealth should make voting as simple as possible and that ranked choice voting is too complicated. It's confusing to me, and I'm a pretty sophisticated voter with a Harvard Law Degree, Braceras said. Since since most people don't have a Harvard Law Degree, Braceras says ranked choice voting could actually disenfranchise those less sophisticated voters, end quote. Another story from the time from WAMC Northeast Public Radio interviewed Anthony Amor, who was serving as a spokesperson for the anti-ranked choice voting campaign. Here's what Anthony said, quote, you have a thing called exhausted ballots, and that is a case in which let's suppose there's five people on the ballot and you only choose one or two because you don't know all of the five candidates. Well, if those two don't make it past the first round, your ballot is what's called exhausted. In other words, you don't have a say in that final showdown. That is just a terrible system that leaves people disenfranchised. Exhausted and spoiled ballots take a lot of people out of the final call in an election. And what's the point if we're not going to get everybody's voice? End quote. And just to explain, when Anthony mentions spoiled ballots there, it refers to ballots that are incorrectly filled out. So maybe someone marks two different candidates as their second choice. Okay. Uh, Anyway, that's a bit of context for you of what's happened in other places and a few examples of the arguments against ranked choice voting. And with that, I'm going to end things for today. If you want to learn more about ranked choice voting, there's a really good website called fairvote.org that has a ton of information. They're definitely pro-ranked choice voting people, but they also just have a lot of data on there and you can learn more. Um, And if you're looking for another podcast, Radiolab did a really good episode on ranked choice voting a few years ago. It's called Tweak the Vote, if you want to look that up as well. And as always, you can find podcasts of our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. One quick friendly request on this, if you like our show and you find it useful, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. It really helps us to be seen and heard by more folks in Austin. So thank you in advance if you're able to do that for us. Um, You can learn more about The Austin Common by visiting our website at theaustincommon.com or following us on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common. And this show is hosted by me, Amy Stansberry, and produced by John Hoffner and broadcast via Co-op Studios, a cooperatively run community radio station based in Austin, Texas. To listen to more of KOOP's amazing lineup of shows, visit koop.org or tune in to 91.7 FM.